Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a researcher at the American Enterprise Institute. I am joined by... Dalibor Rohaj, also from AEI, and... Yulia Zoja with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University. On this podcast, we talk about the many challenges to the European peace that have emerged along a line that runs from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those are important to the United States. Joining us today is Aviezer Tucker, a research fellow at Harvard University and head of Harvard's study abroad uh, program. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. Dalibor, why don't you kick us off? Well, thank you, Giselle. Uh, when we started this podcast, uh, I don't think we were planning necessarily to be providing running commentary on a hot war in Eastern Europe. And in a way, this episode is a sort of return to the um, to the roots of of the idea that we had a few months ago, which consisted of thinking somewhat more deeply and broadly about about these these issues that are arising along the Eastern Front, and thinking also a few steps ahead uh, about what those developments might mean for the future of the transatlantic alliance and, and politics across Western liberal democracies more broadly. Uh, so I'm thrilled to be um, are joined by Avi Tucker, who, and again, like we shouldn't get into the habit of, 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 of flattering our guests too much, but, but in my view, Avi is one of the most underrated public intellectuals out there who has done really important work on subjects that range from the intellectual underpinnings of the dissident movement in communist countries through um, politics of historical memory in Eastern Europe to legacies of, of, of totalitarian regimes in, in, in Eastern Europe. He uh, has lived in Prague for many years and, uh, and, 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 and sort of bridges you know, the worlds of academia and 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 public debate in, in in a very sort of skillful way. So, so I'm really glad we can highlight his work on this uh, on this episode. He he wrote a piece earlier uh, this month in March for uh, the Unpopulist Substack run by our friend Shika Dalmia at the Mercatus, Mercatus Center, where he uh, makes a a rather striking argument, namely um, that in this war against Ukraine, Putin is not only destroying Ukraine, but he's also destroying Putinism uh, as a sort of quasi-ideological doctrine, sort of this sort of pugilistic, xenophobic, uh, Soviet nostalgic doctrine with, you know, featuring reactionary social values, which uh, for a while had some currency in the West, and and has been also a very important part of Russia's soft power in the world. And uh, in his piece, he makes this parallel between the current situation and the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968, which has sort of divided the communist and non-communist left in the West and, and has really rendered communism non-viable as an ideology, sort of discredited it, probably on a, on, a, on a permanent basis for for generations to come. So, so, so I would like to, I guess, 
to kick this off just turn to Avi and 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 tell us a little bit about the these parallels between 1968 and the present day and also about some of the differences that obviously exist between the the current situation and and uh the aftermath of the Soviet invasion Dalibor and all the nice things you said about me are true but they're also very secret so let's keep it that way um the parallels between uh, 68 and, and today are not so much about what's happening inside Russia or the Soviet Union uh but uh in the reaction of uh people who uh accepted the soft power of uh Soviet then and uh, Russian today ideology uh because they are experiencing now uh, what communist experienced in 68 also in 56 which is a crisis of faith of faith Uh, a crisis of belief in a set of uh ideologies that never really quite worked very well with each other or with the world outside uh but they held together and um uh what happening now is the contrast this cognitive dissonance between faith and uh reality is such that the faith is not going to survive um uh what happened in uh, 68 and it's interesting in a sense because the atrocities that the Soviets committed uh in Czechoslovakia in 1968 pale uh, in, uh, entirely in comparison with what they did in uh eastern poland and in the baltic countries only that uh what they did in 68 had the full glare of the media and there were no other distractions whereas what they did in the baltics in the two occupations and in eastern poland uh was hidden by the second world war it was only in this great context uh of the of the war of the atrocities of the nazis and then nobody paid attention to it um uh and in 68 uh, and in 56 in hungary uh the result was uh the fragmentation of the uh so of the support that the uh communist ideology got in the west there were the true believers who who, who kept inventing excuses for uh the invasion uh and the euro communists who uh, wanted to keep their faith in marxism but is chewed uh, uh soviet communism and say well we are euro communists it's different and those people who just uh sort their own way within the left what became later called the the, the new left or just social democracy uh the people just said we, we don't want any anything to do with uh dictatorship or the proletariat or anybody else um and i think that's what's going to happen now uh there will be still the people i think there are eight uh a republican uh congress people who are uh still on the side of of putin a small minority uh they will lose because of that some of them may survive uh but they will become marginal they will be the people who will try to maintain this incoherent uh inconsistent incoherent ideology that putin has been putting forward just think for example uh about religion uh putin presents himself as kind of russian orthodox czarist he is in bed with Lukashenko who's Soviet era atheist who promotes atheism uh with evangelical christians and ultra conservative catholics i mean this be you know these are people who have absolutely nothing in common except that they don't like liberalism uh and that's it uh there's nothing to keep them together that's going to fragment now uh and then there will be uh, uh hopefully people who get become sufficiently disillusioned to just forget about the whole thing and remember that they actually uh, conservatives uh, uh who like things how they are uh, and they don't like change too much uh and they don't like necessary populism because populism is a radical revolutionary movement that wants to really change everything and up, uphold society uh and they may become just conservatives 
either way, what we will see, I think, is it's now the end of uh, this witch's brew that Putin has been marketing because it's, it's losing its marketing power. All that people need to do now uh, when they oppose this, this, this ideology is just talk about Putin and remind people about the blowing uh, apartment buildings in Ukraine. And never the populists talk about immigration. They start talking about Ukraine and about blowing buildings and killing children. Uh, and then, and they are not going to survive that debate any more than the communists were able to survive those debates uh, in the 70s. It's going to take some time. It's gra- it's a gradual process. People don't give up all their faith uh, in one moment. But the, the process is definitely underway already. Uh, and and in that respect, the Ukrainians are doing liberalism uh, uh, a huge service, even though they themselves are actually not that liberal. <laughs> that's, um, that's interesting that you say that. And going back to Putinism, uh, I, I want to ask you how you see... So indeed, we see that it's almost impossible for Western leaders or Western politicians now to still affiliate themselves with Putin. Some some very known ones have done spectacular U-turns. But I wonder how you see Putinism in all its mixed ideology in Russia. Just today, um, we were looking at uh, a rally of Putin with 90,000 people waving the flags um, and the Zs and um, and supporting him in in all his craziness. Um, and in in adding to that, I also wonder how you see the deep ideology of Putin in combination with um, with his strategic aims. Um, Novorossiya is the is a known term for Dugin's ideology and the the wish of of Russia to spread and occupy parts of Eastern Europe all the way to Austria. So how how are we to make sense of Putin's ideology at home? Is it still standing? And um, what are the chances of it crumbling within the elites when we do see uh, leaders of universities and students supporting him and his ideology? Right. Uh, well, how to interpret public rallies and public support, uh, that's already a problem from Soviet era because... Uh, uh, during the Soviet era, and I believe it's the case now as well, uh, public rallies are arranged by trade unions uh, in places of work, and they take rosters of who's coming and who's not coming. So uh, the people who go, I mean, uh, uh, it's not necessarily that they uh, support, they're afraid of losing their jobs. And they, if they come from the countryside, they get a trip to Moscow. Why not? Uh, they'll stay for, uh, uh, for the bars and the, and the restaurants. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, now, Russian nationalism within the context of Russia is self-destructive because uh, let's not forget that Russia is the last empire that is multinational, multi-religious, multi-ethnic. So if you push uh, uh, Russian um, nationalism as a state ideology in Russia, uh, you are alienating major parts of the population who are neither Russian, nor Orthodox, nor Christian. Uh, uh, um, what you would be uh, um, generating is uh, the fragmentation of Russia, in addition, of course, to losing the Soviet Union earlier. Uh, the point is the communist ideology, for all its other uh, known faults, was not national. It was not a nationalist ideology, so it was able to keep the Soviet Union together uh, uh, to the extent that people believed in it. 
And the same thing would be true for democracy or liberalism. But you can't push nationalism. You can have Ukrainian nationalism because partly courtesy of the Nazis and courtesy of the Soviet Union, it's a uni-ethnic state. There are only Ukrainians, almost only Ukrainians in Ukraine. Uh, this is not the case in Russia. In Russia, it's multi-ethnic and multinational. Uh, and and uh, the, the Russian colonists in eastern Ukraine uh, never accepted uh, Ukrainian uh, nationality. Uh, so they, they, are, they were excluded from any na uh, Ukrainian national project uh, to begin with. Uh, and what is interesting now is because Ukrainian nas uh, national identity is still so fluid and flexible, some of them are joining in. Some of them decide that they are going to be um, um, uh, Ukrainians after all, which is a process that, that is interesting. It, it, if you know history, it is so retro 19th century uh, uh, because in the 19th century, uh, nationalities were still so fluid that people were able to choose at a certain point of which nations they were. Uh, um, uh, for example, uh, when people who lived in what is today the Czech Republic or what was Bohemia at the time immigrated to Texas, they did not, some of them spoke German, some of them spoke Czech, many of them spoke both, and they called themselves Bohemians, uh, which meant in the 19th century that many people could choose. Do I want to be Czech? Do I want to be German? What do I want? And, and this kind of fluidity is very typical of the beginning of national identities where people choose. Uh, later, it's become much more difficult or, or it becomes formalized. Uh, in France, it's, it's, not an, it's not an ethnic issue. It's, it's adhesion to uh, a certain ideals of civic duty and, 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 and secularism. Uh, uh, in the United States, we have the Constitution. In other parts in Europe, this is a, it's an ethnic identity, but it's fluid. Uh, uh, you can join, you can join, or you can leave uh, uh, this identity. And and the absurdity of what's happening, what Russia just did, is they created another Ukrainian nation in the same way that the French created the German nation, in the same way that the Germans and the Austrians created the Czech nation. When you have one nation being aggressive towards the other, it generates a national identity which is exactly the opposite of what they wanted to achieve. But that's exactly what they achieved. And what we have now in Ukraine, more than a struggle for freedom and democracy, even though it is there, it is a national struggle against an empire. Uh, and it's, it's straight 19th century. Think about Garibaldi in Italy, uh, uh, the, the Polish struggle for national identity. This, this, is where, this is the context. This is not Václav Havel and not Lech Walesa. Uh, this this is Garibaldi. That was that was such a good wrap up that I'm assuming that that was a, the definitive statement. Um, I so want to believe what you say that I need to check myself and try to be a little bit of a devil's advocate um, in three ways. The first being, of course, the war isn't over yet, and it may be difficult to imagine. Putinism emerging from this um, intact or even strengthened, but it is in the nature of uh, Putinism uh, to, if there is something that can be claimed as a, a Russian victory, he will certainly do so. And there will be people elsewhere who are so committed to this um, you know, sort of romance with the strongmen that uh, they may, we may see a revive, at least something of a revival of the, uh, you know, sort of uh, 
politically homoerotic love of the strong gods. Secondly, I mean, this is taking place in a global context, and it may be that the that Xi Jinping emerges as the uh, uh, you know the 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 new symbol of the uh, intelligent autocrat. And then my final question, my final worry is that a rejection of Putinism is not necessarily the same thing as a reaffirmation of liberalism. Um, you know, many of our discontents are uh, the result of our internal divisions. And so I want you to tell me that I'm wrong on all three counts and that there are broad sunlit uplands ahead but uh, those are my worries. Right. I mean, the myth about Putin, the genius, Putin, uh, uh, the schema, uh, that's gone. That's finished. And it will never come back. I mean, he proved himself to be a total idiot. Uh, not, you know, not to mince words. Uh, uh, because partly, I think, because of the uh, Democrats trying to pin the rise of Donald Trump on him, uh, he appeared to be much more powerful and smart than he actually was. I mean, he, he probably moved a few votes here and there, but uh, uh, the rise of Donald Trump has American reasons. It's not, it's not Russia. The Russian helped. But, uh, uh, so, so he's not this kind of Mephistopheles. Uh, he's much more like a bumbling bully uh, throwing his weight around the yard and then picking up a fight with the wrong guy. Uh, uh, so that's gone. Uh, now, as you say, it's not the end of authoritarianism. But it is the fragmentation of authoritarianism. And this is what we have learned in the last um, uh, half decade. Uh, the important, more important than the balance of power is whether the powers are united. Uh, what helped Orban in Hungary was that the opposition was divided uh, um, more than the actual uh, support that he had. He, he almost never had a total majority. He just managed to fragment the opposition. Same thing in Poland. So what is going to happen now is the opposite for the Putin powers. The same thing that will happen to the communists. It, they are going to get fragmented. And when they get fragmented, they, 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 they end up disappearing. Uh, who would be uh, the next sexy guy? I won't put my money on, on Xi. Uh, he, he, doesn't have, uh, he doesn't have the sex appeal. I mean, he's, I don't see him without a shirt uh, riding uh, a llama. I don't know what. Um, uh, no, uh, you know, they will find somebody else, maybe. Uh, you know, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I don't know. Uh, you know, if you look for, for a tough guy, you'll find somebody. And if you don't, you don't. But not all of them are dangerous. After all, that's, that's what celebrity culture is all about, is, is you look for somebody who's very charismatic again, and then you get, become surprised that he says something stupid, uh, you know. Um, so, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not worried about that. Now, the Russian elite is much more important because that's that's indeed where, where that's where all the money is. That's that's uh, that they would show loyalty to Putin uh, outside. Of course, I mean they are afraid, uh, but whether they are scheming and when they when you will see the defections, that's 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 a big question. When uh, uh, we saw already f um, all the changes of government in uh, Russia, the Soviet Union. Uh, it all involved uh, uh, the splitting of the elites and, and inner fighting within them. That's how uh, Khrushchev got into power, how Beria was killed, uh, how uh, Gorbachev uh, um, ended the Soviet Union and the, the inner schisms there. Uh, that's what we need to look for. Uh, 
directors of universities, it doesn't matter. I mean, these are state employees and they are fairly low on the, on the hierarchy. And the question is what's going on in the security services. Uh, the, 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 the division the, the, between totalitarianism and authoritarianism, which was an argument I made uh, in my earlier book on, um, on totalitarianism, is whether the center of power is in the secret police or in the military. Uh, authoritarian regime, the center of power is in the military, Chile, uh, Spain, and, and so on. Uh, in totalitarian regime, it's the Gestapo and the KGB. Uh, and, and, and Putin, in that respect, it's totally in continu continuity with the um, uh, totalitarian tradition. The center of power is the secret services. So the question is, what is going on there? Of course, he knows, I mean, he, he will try to find out what goes there. He would have his own spy within the spy. You know, these are, these are onion rings, uh, uh, one within the other, and he will try to control, to, to get one power to control the other and so on. He would know all the tricks, but... Uh, Beria knew all the tricks too, and look what happened to him. Uh, uh, so the, the, the question is, uh, what would happen to them? And in the longer term, uh, what would happen to their children? Uh, because uh, another thing that is in continuity with late totalitarianism is that the contemporary Russian elite are good parents. Uh, what I mean is the first revolutionary generation, Stalin and so on, they did not give a damn about their children or their families. Uh, Stalin's, uh, you know, his family was totally dysfunctional. Uh, his son committed suicide, and so on and so forth. Uh, the people who got in, the gray apparatchiks who got into power in the 60s, 70s, they cared for the for the families, and they were generally good parents. Uh, uh, that meant that the children got used to the good life. Uh, the children were not revolutionaries, and and whatever was true about those in the 60s and 70s is twice and thrice as true about. The, this cosmopolitan, uh, fun-loving, south of France uh, elite. Uh, they would not give it up so easily. Uh, not after they tasted the, you know, once you taste Coca-Cola, uh, uh, you're not going to go back to the communist imitations. Um, uh, what the Czechs call Kofola, which was the, uh, you don't go back to that because you, you tasted it. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm always careful not to drink expensive wines, even when I'm being offered, I don't want, used to it. They got used to it already. They're going to miss it. Uh, and, 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 once, once the, and, and, and what would happen then is they would stop enforcing the ideology on each other. Once they get into power, they, you know, let's keep our bank accounts in Monaco and whatever. They will try and, and recreate that. And they will corrupt the system, and then the system would collapse. But that's a very long-term process. Uh, the, immediate pro the immediate question is what, what do the... Uh, 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 secret, because the secret police officers have thoughts already. That's no question about that. They've been having those thoughts for a very long time. The question is, when will they be brave enough to discuss those thoughts with, with somebody that they would trust enough not to run to Putin or, or not to have a, a, a bug on the wall so they can organize? Because what, what's the power of the secret police? I mean, it's, a, it's an absurd in a sense. Why secret police is a relatively small force that has only light weapons, is so much more powerful than a military that has airplanes and tanks and artillery. It's an absurd. Why? Because their power is that they prevent their enemies from ever getting together, from ever organizing. And without organization, there's no social power. Once the opposition can organize, once you can have three secret police in a room trusting each other that they will not betray each other, Putin is finished. And he will do everything he can to prevent that, to prevent people from being able to trust each other enough to share thoughts and make plans.
And that's the question. Is he, he know he knows it as, as just as well as we do. He he knows he would be afraid. He would he would try to make sure that those three people never get in the same room, and that if if they get into the room, that at least two of them who will think that they are the only spies in the room will spy on each other and get promoted by it. Uh, and that's that's what that's the drama that's happening now in Moscow. Before we wrap up. Uh... I, I think it's really important to sort of stress that they are not really arguing in the piece or, or, or beyond the piece that that this is the end of uh, what we can call authoritarian populism in the West at large. That 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 these these pugilistic political movements uh, that have emerged along across Western liberal democracies are really driven by by other reasons and and and. To, to the extent to which they have affinities with Putin's Russia, those those might be sort of tangential rather than central to to their to their appeal. Uh, however, for obvious reasons, it it, it yes, it, it serves as a sort of wedge issue for uh, for for those who oppose these these the, these movements, particularly if 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 they force sudden reversals, like with you know President Zeman of the Czech Republic or. Or Viktor Orban, or, or any any number of figures who have uh, sort of cultivated Russian ties, or or or, or sort of praised uh, Russian leadership over 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 the years. Uh, now, there's an interesting uh, paradox that's related to that, which is uh, which is that for people who who claim to be nationalists, which is a sort of subset of of of, of sort of the, the authoritarian populist scene. Um, the 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 sort of patriotism of of the Ukrainians and the birth of of Ukraine as a political nation um, should should be something that's rather appealing. And I've seen already, and I've mentioned this in, in an earlier episode. I've seen already a few people on, from from national conservative environment pick up on President Zelensky and on on Ukrainian patriotism uh, and, and trying to claim it for. For, for 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 their own. However, it is also the case that uh, this birth of Ukraine as a political nation uh, is happening in the context in which Ukrainians are very much trying to be part of, you know, the global institutional infrastructure built by the built by the West, uh, of NATO, European Union, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and and so it's a very different kind of nationalism, if you will, or patriotism from the one promoted by, by by the national conservatives. Uh, so, so 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 do you think uh, this form of liberal patriotism, or one that is not seeing nations as islands unto themselves, can uh, in a way help uh, somehow reinvigorate? Uh, the idea of patriotism and, and and sort of a healthy attachment to 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 political nations and 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 democratic institutions in the West uh, beyond uh, this 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 sort of issue that 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 you've raised in the in the piece and the sort of challenge of of of, of Putin's war for for Putinists in the in the in the West. Right, uh, nationalism uh, is like potatoes; uh, it fits anything. It can go with any other ideology. Uh, in uh, the 19th century, nationalism in Europe was a liberal ideology because they went against multinational authoritarian uh, uh, empires that were reactionary uh, 
uh, and people always consider them to be uh, a part of the liberal middle class uh, intellectual movement. Uh, it changed in the 20th century because um, nationalism fell victim to its own success. Uh, uh, all these uh, subsequent nations to the Ottomans, to the uh, Russian, to the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, once those nation, nations got into power, they became oppressive to other minorities within the, their uh, uh, realm of, uh, of power. Uh, and that's why we have now the current association that we have between nationalism and things like ethnic cleansing and so on. Uh, people tend to forget that the actual ethnic cleansing was done not so much by the nationalists themselves, but as a favor to them, as it were, either by the Nazis or by the communists. Uh, the, the current uni uni-ethnic uh, Poland, uh, Ukraine, and so on, is the result of expulsions that the Soviet Union conducted at the end of the war. The whole of Western Ukraine was Eastern Poland. Uh, uh, part of uh, uh, Ukraine was also uh, Russinian that were part of Slovakia uh, in, in pre-war uh, Czechoslovakia. Uh, so the, 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 the idea that nationalism must, be, uh, must, must show its xenophobic fangs uh, is it's fairly anachronistic. It doesn't have to be that way. Having said that, some of the streams within Ukrainian nationalism are and indeed have been quite unsavory. Um, the point is that right now it doesn't matter. Uh, uh, they have their own national struggle for liberation. They don't have significant minorities a part of the Russians in the East. Uh, and, uh, uh, and they want to join the European Union and NATO for the same reason the Czechs, Hungarians and Poles wanted to do that in the 90s. And let's give credit where credit is due. Let's, forget, let's not forget the statesmanship of, of, of great thinkers. And, 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 you know, we disparage experts these days. But let's give Madeleine Albright the credit that she is due. If she didn't do that, if, if all these nations did not join NATO and the European Union in the 90s and late noughts, uh, obviously he would have gone after the Baltics before Ukraine. And it would have been easier and faster. Uh, and, and, and the great statesmen, both in East Europe and uh, in the United States at that time, prevented it. And they should get the Nobel Prize for it. Uh, nobody appreciated it at the time, but just see how great they were. Now, so the Ukrainians wanted it at the same time. What I would be worried is what would happen after they get it. Because then they could have the same process, like in Poland and Hungary. They joined the European Union and, and the streets are still not paved in gold. And their salaries are still lower than those in Germany. Uh, and the European Union still wants to regulate this and that. Uh, and they're still being looked at, uh, from, uh, look at condescendingly. And, and they may not like that. And they may have a nationalist uh, backlash. But that's still in the far future. And hopefully, uh, uh, hopefully, I mean, this is really, I'm going out on a limb here. But uh, hopefully, the Ukrainians survive this. And there is a free, U and, uh, and free Ukraine at the end of it. Um, uh, what the West should should do is do the kind of thing that the Marshall Plan would look like charity for. I mean, they should pave Kiev in, in marble. Uh, the, it should, it, the, the, the gap between Ukraine and Russia at that stage should become like West Germany and East Germany. Just that you immediately move from a monochrome movie to a colorful movie. You, you move from, from uh, 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 Dickensian Doss House uh, to Disneyland. Uh, it should be like West Berlin and so on. And, and having been you know, to Lviv, it has everything that the Bohemians need. It can become this kind of West Berlin. Uh, it, it, it has the coffee houses and the cakes and the buildings. And, and, it, and, and Lviv, Lvov, Lemberg, uh, it's there. 
so so uh, uh, if that works, uh, if if the West learns from the mistakes uh, of the '90s, learn from the achievements of the '90s, get Ukraine to join NATO and, and the European Union in due course, make them incredibly successful and wealthy, and do all that and learn all that we learned about corruption and preventing corruption and how to do foreign aid, learn from all those mistakes, it will force Russia to reform as well, eventually. Because the Russians will cross the border, they speak the language, they will see how it goes, they will say, why don't we have the same here? The same way that the East Germans just looked at West German television and said, why don't we have the same? And then, you know, as, as Fukuyama wrote, uh, we'll have the spirit of 1989 all over again. And, and for me, you know, it's also an age thing. Um, uh, I, I, I went to Prague in 1992, it was my first job, my first love, my last love, she's still my wife, uh, and, um, uh, and with all this optimism and, and the openness, and I, I would love to have that back again, but that's just me. Uh, Avi, I, I did want to thank you for, for joining us, um, and I promise that I will steal from you the line, uh, potato, or nationalism is like potatoes. Uh, I, I will duly cite as uh, would be appropriate, but it's too good a line to, to keep your, everything else you can keep secret, but that, that line has to uh, see the wider circulation. Uh, so from me, Giselle Donnelly and... Yulia Zosa. And Dalibor Rohat. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic Sea to Black Sea. Our guest today has been Avi Tucker, uh, who's given us uh, a, a wise look into uh, from the past and into the future. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at aei.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, that's one word, uh, on Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us, and come back and join us next time. Thank you very much, and goodbye.